Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. Interviews and insights from industry professionals, helping you use financed insurance to provide tax-free withdrawals and extended estate protection. The Premium Finance Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, John McDonough. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. John McDonough here, president of Cool Springs Financial. And I've got Harry Schulz and Brian Bark with LBS Law Firm out of Orange County, California, as well as in the Texas area a little bit. And Harry and Brian, you might have a little bit more reach and scope than that. But I'm really excited about this conversation that we're going to have today because we have not yet had insurance attorneys on the podcast. We've had tax attorneys and business attorneys and some other types of legal opinions. But to have your perspective and your experience and background addressing some of the concerns that clients and CFOs and their attorneys bring up to us, really excited. So Brian, Harry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Okay. So I don't know who's got seniority, but whoever does, why don't you start first and then kind of give our listeners your background and where you're from and your history, and then we'll switch it over to the next person. Harry's my mentor. Go for it. Yeah, I guess technically <laughs> I'm older and have been practicing a little bit longer. So my name's Harry. I'm originally from Texas and then was out in California for a long time. Practice both in California and Texas. I'm licensed in both states. Although our practice is pretty national, we have clients East Coast, West Coast, all over the country. Basically, I've been doing insurance stuff since the early 90s. I was an insurance adjuster for several years, about seven years with State Farm doing commercial liability and casualty claims and went to law school out in California at Loyola, left there and went to Irel Manella, which is a, a regional firm out there doing coverage work and did that for about 10 years before striking out on our own. And then Brian and I and another partner, also a former Irel, got together. And our practice group, pretty much handles and we have our firm handles quite a bit of different things commercial litigation you know business organizations things of that nature but my practice primarily in Brian's as well is primarily insurance coverage and so we handle everything from first party is your property life insurance crime policies things of that nature where we will negotiate and draft some provisions. And the same with third party DNO, ENO, CGL, umbrella excess policies, environmental policies, specialized policies. We'll negotiate and then draft those and then help facilitate the processing of claims. And if the claims process breaks down, then we litigate with carriers. And we've been pretty successful at that. So. And yes, I theoretically am Brian's mentor, but it's been 20 some odd years since that happened. So flip it over to him. Thank you. Yeah. One thing that Harry said, I think it's fascinating. First off, my name is Brian Bark. I've been practicing since the late 19, actually early 2000s, but I was also a former insurance adjuster. And not only was I an adjuster, but I actually spent a year and a half as an investigator. 
So I actually went out and went out to scenes of accidents and building fires and industrial accidents. And so you start to learn as an attorney, you know, they teach you how to read the law and stuff. But as an adjuster, you learn that the facts really do matter. And so you investigate that. But one of the things that Harry said, I think that's really important, is that a lot of cases come to us when there's already something terribly wrong with it, like the insurance companies denied, you know, a building burned down. And they said, well, you lied on application or you made a misrepresentation. We'll talk about what that means right because a misrepresentation could be something as simple as we you said you had a sprinkler in this part of the building and you didn't but the cause of loss was theft right and that causes all sorts of problems especially in life insurance but one of the best times to get involved and we have a number of clients that do that is in advance of anything happening when they're filling out the application And in many instances, I'll give you a good example of a tip that I learned a long time ago. They'll make an absolute statement in an application, especially for a business where they'll say, this is our process and procedure. This is what we do. Let's say before any money is ever transferred, we always have two-factor authentication. Well, the problem is the claim doesn't come when that's followed. The claim comes when someone makes a mistake. And so it's way better to say, we have a process where this is our procedure because that's way better than saying we always do this. Because if you say we always do this, now you've made a representation. So it's very thoughtful, I think, to look at the application and consider how what it is you're saying in it. And we get involved with a number of clients, including some Fortune 500 companies that run their applications by us and actually sit in the meetings when they do their renewals to try to make sure that the information they're providing in the application isn't going to be attached to the back of a lawsuit against the policyholder by the insurance company. So not only do we deal with problems with insurance and, you know, again, directors and officers, commercial general liability, property, and of course, life insurance, but we also, it's very helpful for people to think about insurance before the loss occurs. Uh, That's a great point because, you know, we've been taught and people talk about when you're going into a partnership or a multi-headed business arrangement, you always want to think about the exit while you're before you're going in. So you work on all of those clauses and what triggers would you you put into place when you're exiting a business partnership, not just the liquidation or the sale, but all the bad stuff, like the divorce side of the business relationship. So what you're saying, Brian, is your clients in an ideal situation would bring you guys in when they're filling out the application prior to filling out the application for whatever type of insurance they're seeking for their business and to kind of seek your guidance of how to properly answer some of those questions. And so that when it does, if it were ever to be a claim, they can't have that claim denied easily by the carrier. Is that what you're saying? I would say that it's at least better to be thoughtful, right? There's never any assurances that, you know, something didn't go wrong in an application or there's a problem, but the more thoughtful you are, the first time to read an insurance policy and an insurance application shouldn't be when the claim arises, right? It shouldn't be. And and I've seen this all too often where even a big corporation will, you know, hand the application to a junior person because they don't give it much thought and say, hey, just fill this out. I kid you not. I have seen policies for $100 million that are scribbled on a piece of paper where they just answered the questions. And, you know, none of the cases I've ever worked on where we've done that ahead of time, because you would always want to make sure you type that out because you may want to make edits to it before it goes out the door. And the fact is that if you did the first draft of it, have you really thought about it carefully? Right. In my view of the world, and I know Harry's is the same, is that, you know, C-suite people, the people that are high up should, especially because they a lot of times have to sign the thing should make sure they understand and like have stuff checked, 
right? I've actually, in a large corporation, I have sent emails to every office in the entire country and in the entire world in at least four or five instances to make sure that what we're putting in the application is accurate. And by the way, it wasn't. And so we went back and we said, this is the process in most jurisdictions, but some jurisdictions. And to kind of tie into both John and Brian's thoughts, I mean, you know, forethought is really important here. And that's where like coverage counsel like us or others can really bring value to the process, not just in terms of the application. Yeah. And certainly that's part of the process where you're negotiating policy, having people who have litigated the pitfalls and traps of coverage on the claim side, then coming back to the front end and applying that and helping to negotiate language that avoids, hopefully avoids some of those pitfalls is valuable. But also, John, this goes kind of to your point about earlier about the business organizations is, you know, contracts in general, you know, are really important at two phases, I like to say. One is when you first enter into them, right? And the other time is when you know, it hits the fan, right? And so we frequently get brought in to help negotiate, you know, in terms of contracts, the insurance requirements, the ADR, and various other provisions, indemnities, to make sure that they're all coordinated, to make sure that they work properly, to make sure that the party that we represent is complying or the other side is complying with those requirements in terms of insurance and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of times, you know, those clauses frequently in many contracts are just boilerplate. A lot of people copy them and paste them from decades in the past. And we can always spot that immediately because, you know, they'll use terms like comprehensive general liability. Well, comprehensive general liability hasn't been offered since the 70s, right? So, but we'll still see that term in insurance requirements and contracts. And that clues us in that you've got someone who's not really paying attention to these issues, but these are important issues because, again, Contracts are really important when you enter into them and when things break down. And when they break down, insurance and indemnities and things of that nature become critically important. And John, let me give you a concrete example. Let me just give you one concrete example that I hope will help listeners, right? I have for a company that had probably 20,000 employees, the application had a signature line. It said on behalf of every employee that this insurance coverage is, I represent and warrant that the following facts are accurate. One of which is that there was no knowledge of any potential claims. Well, think about that, right? That's a disaster waiting to happen because in reality, you know, some low-level employee may have known there was a problem but didn't know to report it or didn't know that was a big issue. And you know what? That creates a problem. So one of the things we've done is struck that language out and say, on behalf of the CEO, the CFO, and the risk manager we represent, because those three people didn't know anything. But, you know, signing on behalf of 20,000 employees or 200 is a risky move. Yeah, and that's right. And to your point, words matter. And that's a simple your experience allows you guys to make those adjustments, but you know, us business owners, we don't do that type of insurance or they may make widgets. They don't do any type of insurance. And so they may not understand the nuance of those words and how they're put together. But here's my question is obviously it's ideal if your clients come to you prior to executing the documents and executing the insurance policies. How often does that truly happen? And when do your clients typically reach out to you? Is when a claim has been denied? Is it in the middle and they become aware? When do they really most of the time come to you? I would say that I think most of our new clients 
come to us typically when there's been a problem, when something's gone wrong, usually when a claim has been denied, seems to be when we first get introduced to most of our clients. A lot of our clients are repeat visitors. So they learn from the process of, hey, that didn't go as expected or as we wanted it to. Can you bring value to the front end so we don't have this again? So frequently that's how we end up having you know, long-term repeat clients where, you know, we then start negotiating their policies. We do reviews of their towers, things like that, to make sure that everything is properly integrated, including with their contractual requirements and things of that nature. You know, like I said, we built up a stable of clients who just keep coming to us year after year to assist with that process. And some years are more active than others for any particular client. I mean, not every year are you going to revamp or revisit your insurance program, right? But definitely periodic and hopefully not every year do you have a major loss, but we have some who, you know, that's just the nature of the business is losses happen. We have a joke used in our firm internally, which is that every time we review somebody's program or do through a renewal that we haven't done our job unless we can make some improvements. And that's very, we take that personally. And so one of the things I'll give you an example is in directors and officers insurance, right? We have people that come through the door and they may have a policy and a lot of policies excluded. It used to exclude claims when one uh, insured brought a claim against another. And that catered a problem when the director or officer sued the entity. And so we would make changes to the policy. We'd actually, and we'd recommend saying, hey, look, you know what? We've seen better language. Can you please have your broker go back or we'll talk to the underwriter and see what we can do to get this better. And sometimes it's a phone call and they say, oh yeah, you know, your form's six years old. We'll give you the updated one. It's got this additional benefit on it. Or they'll add an endorsement. We've had policies where when the first day of year we looked at it, there were six endorsements. And now there's 20 and those additional 14 endorsements are stuff like fewer people giving reps and warranties, right? Making the exclusions, deleting some exclusions or making the coverage terms broader. So the answer is that it's not just a matter of reviewing the application, which is a good idea, but sometimes you can, we can try to do things to make the policy better if possible. And how often are the carriers willing to work with you guys on making those adjustments and those changes? Because in my you know, it might be the opinion of some of my listeners, and I probably had this too, is, you know, you get what you get and either take it or leave it from the insurance carrier. But what I hear you guys saying is that's not necessarily true, that verbiage can be changed in these contracts and your clients with you guys representing them, you can really customized to a certain extent, the coverage for that firm across all their different lines. Is that what I'm hearing? I would answer that by saying, yeah, yes, but there is a bit of sliding scale. And I know Brian has some thoughts on this as well is, I mean, you know, some of it depends on your market cap, right? Obviously larger companies doing larger amounts of business, I shall say a little bit more bespoke insurance programs, right? And so carriers, are a bit more flexible with that. But I mean, we have plenty of smaller and mid-size capped clients where, you know, there are improvements at the margins, certainly, you know, beyond just, you know, the stock, you know, off the shelf insurance program that can be made. And, you know, that kind of dovetails with Brian's point, which is, you know, a lot of the endorsements and revisions that we seek have already been created or crafted by and approved by the carriers under other programs. It's the fact that we're aware of them that we can then ask and bring them into this particular program. 
Gotcha. You know, are they going to, you know, for larger companies, it's a lot easier to manuscript something, you know, completely original. Smaller companies, they may not do that, but there certainly are other forms, other endorsements that can be brought to bear to address particular issues. And the brokers yeah, are not the guys way. to have these conversations, right? I mean, yeah, the brokers are... Sorry. No, go ahead, Brian. Go ahead. Oh, no, please, you. Okay. What I was going to say is the brokers, they're typically working through an insurance broker to help them with their property and casualty, their crime, their E&O, D&O, cyber, all that stuff, right? So someone is selling that to them. Not They're not necessarily just buying it. So there's recommendations being made by a broker. And it, these brokers, are they just unaware of these endorsements that can be added to the back? So this is where I was going to so Actually, you and I were on the exact same issue. And the answer is that brokers usually are aware. But remember, in a lot of ways, you know, there's the joke about the squeaky wheel getting, you know, the oil. But the reality is that if you think about it for a second, brokers have a body of clients and brokers usually try to do their job. They'll, if they get improvements, they usually will try to pass them along. But remember, a lot of times they go through a renewal and what'll happen is they'll get a quote in and it'll say same as expiring, right? And then you sign the piece of paper, broker makes their commission. There's not, no critical uh, criticism of the broker whatsoever because you really didn't ask, right? The broker's job, if you think about it, for the most part, a lot of brokers, your job is to get the insurance that's asked for. Right. It's not to go out and say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to create you a program because think about it for a second. What brokers will say is that you're the person that knows the best about what your risks are, not me. And so one of the things that I like to do in most of my reviews is to say, look, you should separately approach your broker. And by the way, even consider talking to some other brokers to make sure this is the right broker for you and ask them, hey, what improvements have you seen? Does our policy include those improvements? Because now you've put it upon the broker to actually sit down and think about your program and consider whether they've seen things that have led to some improvements if they're aware of them. Because remember, brokers' positions usually look, I get you the insurance you ask for. And there's some law that says that unless they, you know, unless there's certain exceptions to that. But the reality is that, you know, you got to ask for it. And that really does make sense as you say, hey, look, I've, is this program you know, is this a good program? Now, by the way, the good news is in stuff like DNO, a lot of private companies can actually get pretty good coverage compared to big public companies because big public companies get sued all the time. Yeah. Private companies yeah. might go decades and never have a single lawsuit. Yeah, it's a good point. And it makes me acutely aware of my own coverages that we've got for our company and making me think, you know, I need to have these reviewed. <laughs> Because what are the gaps? But I was also thinking about a good friend of mine. I'll give you guys an example and then kind of just let you speak on it. He, he got notified. So he lives here in Texas and he lives in very, you know, million, million three home valuation, maybe million five. And he got an email from his broker that says, hey, your PNC company, they're going insolvent and you have until... September 7th, this was last year, you have until September 7th to um, get your new insurance carrier online on August 31st. So he did that and he said, let's start the new policy on August 31st, or on September 7th, excuse me, to start the new, he sent the premium for the new print policy to start September 7th. On August 30th or 31st, his house burned down to the ground. 
And they don't know if it was because of the golf cart or something with this truck or somehow, some way in the garage, it started a massive fire, went upstairs, just completely destroyed the house down to the studs. Well, he had no coverage. And so there's a state guarantee association, right? But it's only a limited amount of money. I think 300,000 in this example. And he's, you know, trying to figure out what to do. But that's in a situation that just came to my mind as you guys were talking where, you know, understanding your options would have been really important. But he, no one thinks your house is going to burn down, right? But he was like, you know, my, my broker didn't tell me that I would have a gap in coverage, right? During that period of time. So it's kind of a, hits close to home, but just an anecdotal conversation to have. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like the joke with estate planning or not estate planning, it's of retirement planning, right? The best day to start your retirement plan is when you're 16 years old and the second best day is today. And uh, all too often people will get a notice in the mail from an insurance company and they'll just stick it in their pile and not give it a thought and not realize that a timer is running. And as far as insolvent carriers, I mean, that's something that has happened from time to time. There was some that went under in 08. There were quite a few that went under in the early 2000s. And we were involved with those because those affect a lot of those carriers, you know, aren't just personal carriers, but they have right coverage for commercial as well. And so, you know, you're right. You get involved with the insurance guarantee associations. And in some instances, you may have claims against multiple insurance guarantee associations, not just in the particular state that you're in, but in, in other states as well, depending on different factors. As you know, there are limitations with what is paid or payable under those. Um, there Sometimes there's an initial amount involved, and then there may be additional amounts that he could recover down the road, depending. You have different claim priorities. It's, it's very similar to bankruptcy, where you put in your notice of claim and stuff like that. There are time limits, so it gets relatively complex. But yes, we've dealt with that as well. And yeah, it's just a very different world. And but way, I, you know, in this market, I would expect that there may be some additional carriers that go under. You know, you know your listeners, they can be proactive, by the way. They can sign up for an AM Best account, any one of them, you just sign up and uh, and you can, or you can just look up on the website for the insurance company and look up their credit rating, right? And people yeah. don't think about that at all. They just say, oh, I'll just go with a carrier because, you know, carriers do, especially if they're domestic carriers, but this becomes more important if you go in the surplus lines where you actually want coverage from an, a foreign jurisdiction, which lets you actually get potentially better or different coverage terms but it's not covered by the guarantee association. But you know what? You can look up, quickly look up and say, hey, this is an AM best rated A plus carrier that has what's called a financial size category. And there's a big difference between a five and a, an Seven. 11, right? Or a, an 11, or a, which is like, it could be the difference between having $50 million of policyholder surplus, which is excess money they're holding sitting on, or having $2 billion of surplus. Yeah, yeah those are big numbers, obviously. And so let's make the clunky transition to life insurance because that cool springs <laughs> at cool springs, you know, what we do and you guys know this because we've spoken in the past is we exclusively do premium finance structures and for life insurance purposes, either on the personal estate planning side or from a corporation standpoint 
for buy sell agreements, key person policies, executive bonus, like golden handcuff structures, things like that. So really, my question isn't necessarily geared around the financing side of things, but when you see something get hairy or something go wrong in the life insurance world, what is it you guys have seen from the legal perspective? I think for me personally, a on the life insurance side, one of the most changing cases I've ever dealt with is I've dealt with a situation where a business purchased a very large amount of life insurance to cover the requirement in the, in the shareholder agreement to purchase back the owner shares so that the company remained a closely held company and it didn't get diluted across a, a large group of families. And, and they had life insurance specifically for that. And unfortunately, the person, you know, it's a really tragic situation, but the person killed themselves within a period of time that the policy, if you looked at the face of the policy, you lost, right? And that was came to us. And in fact, a lot of the attorneys that looked at the case and even some that the people that sent the case over, they thought it was a complete losing proposition. But you know what you got to do then is you start digging into the details. And I mean, when I say details, I'm talking about we got the computer screens. We subpoenaed them from the insurance company. didn't subpoena, we do a document request, but we got the screens and we actually deposed like people that whose job it was to sit in front of that computer and enter that information. And we'd say, what does this little flag code mean? And what we discovered in the process was that the date on the policy was the date that particular contract document had been issued, but it was actually reissued. And it was actually, there was an earlier policy in place that the insurance company was just trying to add an improvement. The broker was just like, oh, I'm adding a feature. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden- Now you're outside the two-year period. So now we're arguing we're outside the two-year period. We got some documentation in that case that the policyholder wasn't even aware that it had been done. It was a nice little upgrade feature. And all of a sudden, the case went from everyone saying this isn't going to work and it's a, it's probably a loser to a case in which the insurance company was unquestionably going to pay. The question is how much? And in that instance, they paid you know a tremendous amount of it because they're really their arguments now don't look so good, right? Now, all of a sudden, our case is three exhibits to put up on a screen that show, hey, guys, you know what? They, this person, it was more than the two years, right? It's just because you did some technical thing on your end that nobody even knew about doesn't let you avoid coverage. So how were they able to get away from paying the full face amount of the policy if you kind of were able to memorialize that two-year window had been crossed? How were they able to not pay what they're required well, first to off, pay. I, I'm not going to, I can't go into the uh, full amount they paid in the sense that it, a confidential amount. The answer is that the vast majority was paid. And the, the reason it, you say, why do you not get a hundred cents on the dollar? And the answer is that because language is king, right? They also Words have an, matter. they put up the policy and you read the policy and you lose. Litigation right? risk. Litigation risk, right? We may find someone that agrees with us. At the end of the day, though, you know what? When that case is in front, you how do you value it? And the answer is that when you have that kind of a fact pattern, the case goes from being worth 10 cents on the dollar to being worth 95 cents on the dollar or 98 cents on the dollar. And that's a high number, by the way, because I'd be honest with you, any case that you're taking a trial, you know, you got a 20% chance of losing because the jury might just hate you. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that example, was that 
hopefully enough then to buy out those shareholders. So did it accomplish what it was originally set up to do? So you're going to actually be amazed when I tell you the answer to this. The answer to this is not only do I not know that, but I'm not supposed to because we represented both the entity and the beneficiaries under the policy. And so it would actually be as an attorney, my job is to zealously get the money for the clients. And so if you think about it for a second, right, at that point, they can go discuss it amongst themselves or even if they have their own separate attorneys deal with the issue. Our job is to try to get the policy proceeds. And by the way, that creates an amazing dynamic. We've actually gone into to mediations and gone into meetings where two sides that are suing each other both love us. They'll both have us in their room because they know we're trying to get the insurance dollars that make their yeah. dispute go away. I love that. I know it's a fair answer and I appreciate that answer. You know, for us, because we would have done that type of structure, except instead of the company paying the premiums, we would have financed the premiums for the organization to do that. But, you know, what you de- what you described was similar to what we would call a buy-sell, right? And buy-sells have lots of shapes and sizes and colors to them. But to oversimplify it, and we and always talk about premium financed it. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So I saw, you know, I, one of the questions in preparation for this, and I thought it was a curious question is what happens when the person dies before the policy is issued? Right. And so we, just so you guys know where we are constantly pushing the carriers to move as fast as we can get them to move because anything can happen any given day to any client in the underwriting process. And we don't want them to obviously die during the process, but I'm curious to know the answer to that question. What does happen when someone dies during the underwriting process before it's issued? So the good news on that front is that there's actually some statutes and there's actually some case law that at least gives you a fighting chance. Right. Because if you think about it for a second, is that the actual issuance of the policy is a formality. Right. You learn about the story in law school, which it's a great story and it's not an insurance story. And it's actually really kind of sad and funny. But you have a situation where the, you know, the 90 year olds get married to this young girl and they at the wedding ceremony, you know, he says I do. She says I do. And he dies before the person declares them husband and wife. It's a real case. Right. Mm -hmm. That really happened. And so you say to yourself, this isn't a hypothetical they teach in law school. A court had to actually sort that case out and figure out. And what the court said is that, look, they expressed their intent to be married. So they were married. And in that case, it was a four share state. It wasn't a community property state. So it wound up with a very different result. And so I think that if you look at like California insurance code 10115, you know, talks about one. It's got to be the type of policy where you're expecting to get the coverage. You make your premium payment concurrently with submitting the application, right? They acknowledge the receipt of it and they approve it for the class of business that it's supposed to be. But here's the catch. Policies under statute are allowed to limit that benefit. So many policies might say, if you die before the policy is formally issued, you get 50 grand. So read the papers carefully. Right. That goes to and Brian's we, point we earlier about applications, right? You know, the language of the applications can be critical in that sense. Yeah. And what about, so I appreciate that. What about divorce? Unfortunately, it's, there's a statistic, I think one in every two marriages ends in divorce or something of that nature. So how have you dealt with the cases where there's a divorce 
and the spouse is named as a beneficiary or it was purchased with joint dollars, right? It comes from their bank accounts to purchase it or they finance it and it's used, they're using their own personal financial statement to finance it. How do y'all sort through that messy subject? This is pretty messy. I mean, you know, you're definitely, you know, obviously the divorce decree is going to represent kind of the controlling document in terms of, you know, allocation of assets and things like that. But, you know, that's a great point in terms of, you know, the purchasing, you know, paying money towards a whole or universal life policy, you know, which is a, an asset. And, you know, if you're in a community property state, you know, arguably, you know, the monies that go towards that purchase or the appreciation of that asset can become a community property asset. So, yeah, and not every state is a community property state, obviously, but, you know, it does get pretty murky on that. And, you know, so the division gets pretty complex. And Brian, I know you were talking about that last night. We were. Yeah, I've actually dealt with the divorce situation and actually been advising a couple of law firms who deal with who deal with, you know, business structures and mergers and acquisitions and especially corporate ownership. And I'm helping a couple of companies go through this issue right now. But, you know, one thing to love about being a lawyer is that it's a puzzle. Right. It is a puzzle and you can trace all of the, try to trace as many of the pieces of that puzzle as you can. Right. So divorce. Well, first off, keep in mind that to have life insurance, you have to have an insurable interest. That's really important. Right. Why is that so important? Because you don't want someone who you don't know taking out a policy on your life. You may not want to walk out of your house if that were allowed. Right. right. You want to make sure that the person who purchases the policy has an interest in your life or your life's at risk. It's not a safe thing. And that's the law. It prevents things like speculative investing, by the way, in life insurance, right? It prevents someone from going out and taking out life insurance on 500 people who they think live terrible lifestyles. And, uh, you know, and, and if you think about it for a second, when you work through that puzzle, but the problem is that you have to have an insurable interest. It's sort of at the time you get the policy. It's not necessarily at the time that you get divorced or even later. So spouses get named on policies and people forget to fix that, right? Mm. So one of the things that, you know, hopefully you do in a divorce is, is take care of the issue and address it in the decree. But I'll tell you what, if the decree, it doesn't, isn't pretty clear about that. You could wind up with a spouse, a divorced spouse. You could wind up with a divorced spouse getting a life insurance proceeds that they weren't sort of nobody expected them to get. It also becomes a problem, by the way, when you talk about using community property to buy the policy, because what happens is that, especially like a whole life product that has an investment vehicle in it, and then all of a sudden the person gets divorced and they name their new spouse under the policy. But the problem is that the money that was put in to pay for the policy was community property. That's right. Yep. Yep. And so the insurable interest thing is something that we deal with every single day. And it really goes back to, I guess I realized when you guys were giving your history and when you started, I've been in the insurance business about how long you guys have been practicing law. So in 2000 was when I got started. And during that time in the early 2000s, stranger owned life insurance or investor owned life insurance was a big deal, right? And the carriers were cracking down substantially on that. To your point, Brian, and that's where the insurable interest has become front and center. We have to prove to the carriers the insurable interest, either on an individual estate planning side, if I'm doing children, grandchildren, generation skipping types of designs, aunts, uncles, 
nephews. And then on the corporate side, you know, it's a little bit easier to do on the corporate side because you can justify C-suites and, you know, superstar vice presidents and managing directors and things like that. That's pretty easy to do. But what's interesting is that you've already kind of brought this point up as well as once the policy is issued, there is no longer a requirement to justify the insurable interest on who's going to be the owner of that policy going forward. It's just upon the issue. It's not necessarily after the policy of the issue because then the Supreme Court, you guys might know this better than I, but they've ruled that it becomes a real asset. Life insurance, when it's in, when it's issued, is a real asset for the owner and it can be bought and sold and traded in a secondary market. Have y'all dealt with that at all? I think we've dealt with obviously the insurable interest end of it in terms of, you know, uh, derivatization, the policy and selling it or anything like that. And I don't think I, at least I haven't, Brian. So I'll tell you what, I laugh because I, when I started in the of insurance and especially when I was an adjuster, right, there were companies that would literally go out and take out insurance on 500 of their employees or, you know, 500 employees. And, and here's the tricky part though, is that they could get those employees to sign a piece of paper authorizing it, which is really interesting because the problem with that is, is then if you think about it for a second, the, the person who's authorizing it does have an insurable interest and they could actually take the position. And so the, it's actually the legislature that fixed that problem, which is called what's called stranger oriented life insurance. And so they passed a statute that basically called it essentially effectively like a fraudulent life settlement act. They actually defined it in the statute to prevent that exact situation of was it Walmart using, doing that? Yeah, I think it was Walmart actually. It may yeah. have been. I don't recall off the top of my head, but that does sound familiar. Yeah. It's interesting. And and now you mentioned the life settlement marketplace. We don't do life settlements, but that has become a huge marketplace for pension fund managers. Right. So now pension fund managers are looking for yield as they all are. We all are in our investment accounts. We're looking for yield right now. And they've found that, you know, they can purchase life insurance policies through the life settlement marketplace for individuals that might have, they call it LEs, life expectancies of 120 months or less or 10 years or less. And they're buying those into their funds because it's a non-correlated asset class. But it's, it's just amazing how these different markets and opportunities create itself from insurance. It's specifically life insurance, not obviously the other insurances that you guys advise on. Okay. What else? I've actually seen radical settlements and stuff like that before. It's strange. You're right. It creates, it's a complicated area. What I would say, by the way, is that people are interested in using it, especially for, you know, for what you do is that they should consult with you because that's really important. You don't want to screw this up. No, you don't. And you want to make sure it's done right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so people that are interested in it absolutely should consult with expertise because I think that really does matter. So that's the interesting thing about life. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Harry, please. I was just going to say that's the interesting thing about life insurance versus other types of insurance is that you have the uncertainty risk of other insurance policies, right? You don't know when or if you're going to get a claim, whereas life insurance, you know that you are eventually going to have a claim. So it makes it quantifiable as an asset and you know much more readily traded. So. so in the ranges of insurance, legal advice that you guys provide, first party property, crime, obviously life insurance that we've been talking about, third-party policies as ENO, DNO, CGL stands for commercial, commercial general liability. liability. 
Yep. Cyber umbrella excess environmental policies. Someone listening to this podcast, obviously we're going to put a link to LBS on the link. You guys will put your email and contact, but what's the process if someone were to reach out to you, what should they expect? Yeah, I think the way usually it works. Well, first off, hopefully, you know, I always jokingly say we don't want to, you know, we hope to hear from our clients to let us know how great they're doing and uh, and if they'd like some thoughts and uh, reviewing applications or placing coverage. You know, obviously, the sad part is that a lot of times we get referrals, including from, you know, from other law firms when something's gone terribly wrong. Usually what you expect is is honesty, right? Usually what we get is we say, hey, look, let's make sure we don't have any conflicts, which we almost never have conflicts with insurance companies. And then usually I say, send me the policy, send me the letter you got from the insurance company, and let's start understanding what's going on. And usually we'll take a quick look. You know, we, at the annoyance of some of my partners, almost, you usually don't charge for that. Usually we just will spend an hour or half an hour looking through the documents and if we can't help you, we try to tell people right away. And that's also very important from a litigation standpoint, right? We characterize our litigations in a manner to say, look, if it's a close call, I'd rather tee that up before a tremendous amount of money is spent. Because you know what? If we can get a hit out of the park, that's great. And we can move the case along. But if, you know, if you're going to lose, because especially because if it's a close call, I'd rather not spend a lot of money and I'd also rather like try to evaluate that and understand what our best arguments are, right? What's really important is to try to analyze and understand. And Harry, who has just an amazing run of cases right now, where, you know, he had a carrier come back and said, look, this exclusion applies. You didn't purchase the right kind of coverage. And Harry came back and he said, you know what? I understand the argument you're making, but you know what? When you read the lawsuit, some of the allegations, right, are within the scope of this policy. And there's a case, Buster Superior Court, that says you got to now defend the entire case. And they said, not a chance in hell. Sue us. Not going to happen. We sued. Harry brought, they brought a motion, said we win as a matter of law. And they lost. And the carrier is now in a situation where they're trying to run up an appeal because they're absolutely mortified that a case that they probably believe is 99 to 100% uncovered, they may have to pay to defend the entire case right now. And so I would say in echoing what Brian just said is we don't get the easy cases. You know, we kind of deal with in terms of claims frequently when people come to us, you know, they've already consulted with other attorneys who have told them you're not going to get coverage. The denial looks proper to me, things like that. So a lot of times we get, we're kind of the last stop, but, you know, I think we try to be kind of outside the box. I mean, we will obviously be honest and we'll give our honest assessment, but if we think there's arguments, you know, I mean, then we will make those arguments. And so we're kind of, as one our other partner, one of our other partners likes to say, we provide bespoke solutions predominantly in the insurance arena. And that's kind of our forte is figuring out a way to crack the puzzle when others, you know, have not been able to do so. Well, I think you just gave me the title for this podcast, Bespoke Legal Solutions in the Insurance Space. I think that's great. And that's right in line. Now, I hope my clients or the listeners wouldn't need your services on an after the fact, when it's too late, when it's messy, when they're being denied. I hope I can motivate them and encourage them to reach out to you guys in advance of that. 
but I feel confident that either way, when they reach out to you guys, they're going to get sound advice, get a good hard look at it, and you'll tell them if there's a path forward or not. So Brian, Harry, thank you for taking the time. We will be talking <laughs> soon about my stuff as well and our stuff, but in the interim, you guys be blessed and we'll talk to you soon. John, John. happy to and a pleasure. It was right, great. Thank you, gentlemen. Had fun. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at premiumfinanceshow.com. And you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at coolspringsfinancial.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.